Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, thus far, we are two days into the week, and it's been relatively uneventful. Not a lot of economic news that has come out thus far in the week. Of course, what news has come out has been bad, and I'm going to get to that. I think the main reason I'm doing this podcast this evening, uh, you're probably not going to be listening to it till Wednesday morning, is that I am flying down to Mexico uh, in the morning. I'm going to be down in Cancun. Uh, for a conference for a few days. For those of you who are going to be down there with me, I'm looking forward to seeing you. I think there's 300-odd attendees, a little over 300. It's uh, Simon Black, Sovereign Man. Last time I went to one of Simon's conferences, it was down in, in, uh, in Santiago, Chile. So not quite as far south going to Mexico, but it was a great event, so I'm looking forward uh, to this one. But I wanted to get a podcast, uh, you know, done and... uh, ready to go before I left. And I will bring my radio equipment down with me. So I probably will get around to doing one more uh, while I'm down in Mexico. So this won't be the only podcast of the week, but there's not going to be a lot uh, because of my my traveling. But let's get into some of the news that we got in the markets. And the markets, uh, you know, been volatile. But the news, again, uh, what little we have has been bad. On Monday, we got the Chicago Fed National Activity Index. And, you know, once again, everybody was expecting a bounce back because last month the index dropped. It was down uh, 0.11. So it was minus 0.11. And the consensus was that it would rebound to plus 0.15. And that seems to always be the consensus. I'm sure that they're looking for a bounce back. In April, but we got the March number. Now, there were some people who thought the number would be negative, right? The lowest forecast was minus 0.26. But most people were looking for an increase because the mean of the consensus was plus 0.15 and the high end was plus 0.2. Well, the actual number came in at minus, minus 0.42. So basically about double the the worst case estimate. And not only that, but they took last month's number, February's number, which was originally reported at minus 11, and now that's minus 1.8. So not only did they miss big time 
in March because they were looking for an increase and they got a huge drop. But they took the drop that we got in the prior month and made it an even bigger drop. So the three-month moving average, which was 0.8 to the negative when they reported it last time, has now fallen to minus 0.27. So this is weak economic news, and this is the lowest level for that particular number since May of 2013. So about a two-year low in the March Chicago National Fed Activity Index. So again, the markets really didn't seem to care about this number because after all, it happened in March. And I guess March is technically still the winter, even though part of March is in the spring. But I guess anything that's bad in March, we don't have to worry about it. Uh, But they're not going to be able to say that, you know, in April and May, because we're going to have bad numbers then too. And they're going to have to come up with a brand new excuse. Now, here's another interesting number that came out. And, of course, they're already excusing it. Uh, But this is this weekly Red Book same-store sales survey that comes out. And the interesting thing about this survey is that it is now down to the lowest annual increase in four years. Uh, the the rate is 0.8, but just in December, December 23rd, right? So kind of late last year, the year-over-year increase was 5.3. And so if you look at how sharply that thing has dropped since late December, the end of the fourth quarter, and now where we are, I mean, I've never seen it on a chart where it's dropped so much so quickly. So not only are we at four-year lows in the absolute level, but the rate of decline over the past quarter or so uh, has been faster than any point I can see in, in memory. So it's really deteriorating. And what I read of, of what little reports there were about this particular uh, you know, metric, they're all blaming it on Easter and you know when Easter happened to fall. You know, I forget if it was late or early or whatever it was. It was where Easter fell in the calendar uh, that 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 was the responsible. But you can't really explain this because we've had we've been declining sharply since Christmas. So it's hard to attribute a trend that's been existing since Christmas to when Easter happened to fall in May uh, or not uh, or not in a rather in April. You know where in April Easter Easter happened. So people are always looking for excuses. Economists are always trying to come up with one excuse to rationalize why the number is bad instead of just dealing with a bad number and saying, hey, the number is bad because the economy is weak. The economy is not nearly as strong as we thought. That's why the number is bad. See, they don't want to admit that. So they always have to find some reason to blame, some excuse, so that they don't have to deal with that reality. They can continue to pretend that the economy is good and, well, we got a bad number. Well, oh, well that's not because of the economy. That's because of this other thing that's totally unrelated. Because, that's, see, that's why all the news is always unexpected when it's bad. That's why every time they're looking for a number, they're looking for a good number. But then when they don't get a good number, they come up with an excuse. But here's what, you know, you'd want to think. Why don't they have the excuses in advance? I mean, if they know that the bad number is, let's say, related to the weather, then why don't they expect the number to be bad? After all, they know what the weather was, right? When you get a March number and it's in April, 
you have the weather report from March. You know exactly what the weather was like. It's not like forecasting the weather in the future. That's hard to do. Anybody can forecast what the weather was yesterday. You're going to do that with 100% accuracy. So since a lot of these excuses are known in advance, why aren't people expecting it? Right? Uh, and then when they get it, they just blame it on the situation that they should have already known about, and it should have been factored in. In fact, a lot of these numbers are seasonally adjusted. And the seasonal adjustment is supposed to take care of the seasonality like the weather. And so if you're seasonally adjusting numbers anyway, and then you're making an excuse why the number is so bad when they've already factored in the seasonality into the number, right? None of this is legitimate. It is all excuse making. But we are going to be running out of excuses You know, especially now, I've been talking about the rebound in the oil price. This week, oil prices uh, moved above $57. That may not sound like a lot, you know, when we were paying $100 a barrel, uh, but oil bottomed out at 42. So percentage-wise, that's a pretty big move. And I think we're forming, as I said before, a very, very sizable W bottom in the oil price. And, And so I think there's a lot of upside. I don't know that we're going to get up to 100 this year, but we can certainly get up uh, into the 70s. And that's a big move. And that's not going to be unnoticed by the consumer when he you know, goes to buy his gasoline. But, of course, other prices are going up. I mentioned on the last podcast we got a big increase in the core CPI, bigger than expected, led higher by rising rents. Uh, rising health care costs, uh, cheaper gas was, uh, you know, was, a, you know, like a lifeline that is now uh, going to be, you know, taken away. So you add more expensive gas prices, even though they're not as expensive as they were a year ago, they're going to be rising and more expensive than they were a few months ago. That's just going to compound the misery. In fact, we got some interesting news coming out of Canada. And in fact, the Canadian dollar is up about 5% here in the last week or so. And I mentioned uh, last week, too, the strength in the Canadian dollar, which has continued. And one of the numbers that came out last week was the big jump in Canadian inflation, uh, particularly when you don't count energy, because gas prices were still going down, but the price of everything else was going up, most particularly the price of food. Because I think in the most recent month, food prices alone were up almost 4% on the month. Not on the year, on the month. And, of course, certain food items, certain meats and vegetables, produce are really going up uh, very, very rapidly. And, of course, this is all the result of the big drop in the Canadian dollar. And why did the Canadian dollar drop? Because the Central Bank of Canada cut interest rates and said the reason they were doing this was because there wasn't enough inflation. They were worried that inflation would be too low. And so they cut rates. The dollar tanked. Now prices have jumped up. And now the Canadians are really having a hard time uh, because the cost of food, uh, one of the most basic necessities of life, is now jumping very substantially. And, and so I think this is the end of the rate-cutting cycle in Canada. They've got more than they bargained for. I don't think we've seen the end of this inflation turn. I think they are going to end up with headline inflation in Canada well north of 2%. And Uh, probably before the end of the year, maybe, we're going to have to see the Central Bank of Canada starting to raise interest rates to contain 
the inflationary fire that they lit on purpose. But I don't think it's just going to be Canada. I think you're going to see central banks around the world having to dial back on their cheap money policies uh, because the so-called threat of deflation is going to be uh, in the rearview mirror. And what they're going to be staring at in the windshield is inflation, is rising prices and the backlash from consumers because consumers don't like higher prices. Central banks may like it, but consumers don't. But we got a little taste of what's in for us here in America today because we had a central banker, and this guy is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, right? Eric Rosengren. He's not a voting uh, FOMC member, but obviously he's, he's high up there. He's a the president of the Bank of Boston. And what he says is, you know, pretty representative of the way people think there at the Federal Reserve. And what he said today was that he thought our 2% inflation target was too low, too low, meaning that we ought to target a level of inflation higher than 2%. Now, how high does he want to target? He didn't say, right? I mean, is it going to be two and a half? Is it going to be three? Is it going to be four? I mean, what is the target uh, that Eric Rosengren thinks would be appropriate? Now, the reason he says we need higher inflation is because he thinks that gives us leeway to pursue more growth, that the thing holding us back is this fear of inflation. And if we can just raise the target maybe to 3%, the Fed can be a lot easier. We can keep interest rates lower for longer if we're willing to allow the inflation rate to move up, right? But of course, we know that cheap money doesn't create economic growth and doesn't create employment. It actually undermines both. But if you believe that no matter what, See, this is the vicious cycle that you find yourself in. So you use cheap monetary policy to grow the economy and create jobs. And instead, it weakens the economy and destroys jobs. And now you're staring at a weak economy that's losing jobs. And you think, oh, my gosh, we need more stimulus. We need to, we need even more cheap money. We need to print more money. Uh, and, and now, you know, you start having inflation, but you're not getting the economic growth. And then the conclusion is we just don't have enough inflation. We need 3%. Maybe that'll do the trick. 4%, 5%, 6%. The problem is the more inflation you create to create growth, the slower the economy gets in real terms, which means the more inflation you ultimately have to create until you eventually figure it out. But of course, by the time you figure it out, it's too late because you, you know, you've dug yourself in a grand canyon of a hole that now it's impossible to get out. But the fact that you've got these guys at the Fed, this is just the beginning. Because if I'm right, and look, the dollar has turned, and it seems to me that the dollar has turned, that it's peaked, you know, and the dollar has turned. Oil is turned. And if this is the case, then a weakening dollar is going to put upward pressure on already rising consumer prices. And these numbers are going to start to be north of 2%. And the Fed is already trying to lay the foundation for why they won't raise interest rates with rising inflation. And we already know that if the, the job market has already peaked out, Right. The Fed is saying they expect the unemployment rate to go down to five percent from five and a half. What if it goes up to six instead goes in the other direction? Well, now they're going to need QE four. forget about rate hikes. But the only thing that might stop them would be if inflation was up at their two percent target, unless they've already said, ah, you know, let's have a higher target. 
We're not worried about 2%. Uh, we're more worried about the economic slowdown. And so we're willing to have more inflation. And after all, inflation is not a bad thing. But of course, the consumer, just like the Canadian, doesn't like higher prices. That's why everybody wants to shop at Walmart. They advertise everyday low prices. They don't advertise everyday high prices. But economists think that prices going up is a good thing. But, we're all, you know, you see the backlash. And the problem is... We can't do anything about it. I do believe that other countries are positioned to stop the inflation. So once countries uh, get see inflation rates north of 2%, countries that are fiscally solvent, that are in a position to raise rates because they can afford it, will do so. The problem is all we can do about inflation is talk tough. It's like the opposite of um, Teddy Roosevelt, right? He was speak softly and carry a big stick. See, we scream and we have no stick. And we're screaming so loudly because we don't want people to realize that we don't have a stick. All we've got is is is, you know, is the capacity to scream. But if that doesn't work, we can't back it up with anything. Uh, you know, and that, you know, I mentioned on my last podcast, I mentioned Teddy Roosevelt, you know, only in kind of like a negative way because when they talked about uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt in the Hall of Presidents, uh, they only talked about his trust busting. You know, his attacks against big business. I mean, you know, they didn't really go into his foreign policy or that aspect of his foreign policy, which, uh, you know, which, you know, where, you know, I, 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 I was a fan of him in that respect. Uh, it was just his economic policy and his, you know, a- a- anti-monopoly or trust busting, that kind of stuff that I didn't like. But that was the only thing that uh, Disney wanted to highlight was the fact that he was anti-business, and that's what made him a great guy, plus the fact that he was the uh, uh, related to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He was his uh, uh, uncle or whatever he was, and, um, and, and that, that also, because they, they wanted to tie in uh, one Roosevelt with another, who was probably their, their, their favorite president. No, I thought about this after I recorded it, because you know, I was also talking about um, Paul Krugman, and then I thought, you know, Gino, if they had a, a hall of economists, a hall of Keynesian economists at Disneyland, right, the way they have a hall of, uh, of presidents. See, the hall of presidents is in Liberty Square, right, even though, you know, the presidents that they featured weren't the leaders of liberty. They were the destroyers of liberty, most of them anyway. Um, but I said if they built something like that for economists, and it's certainly for Keynesian economists, they'd have, they'd have to build a whole exhibit in Fantasyland. Because that's the only place that Keynesian economics belongs is in fantasy land. And the fantasy of this Keynesian recovery is about to come crashing into the reality of a renewed recession, depression, and a currency crisis. And I'd like to see Paul Krugman wiggle his way out of this one and try to argue uh, you know, why Superman or Super Krugman, whatever he calls himself, uh, uh, how, how somehow— he was right in all those crazy free market Austrian school, um, what does he call us, um, Austerians or whatever it is, how, how, uh, how we were so wrong and he was so right when his, this whole horrible experiment of his, you know, it's it just like a little kid, you know, blowing up a, 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 a chemistry set because that's really what Paul Krugman is. He has all these, uh, the, these chemicals, these Keynesian chemicals, and he throws them all together, and he expects something great to happen, and he ends up blowing himself up. And that's exactly what's going to happen, except it's not himself that's blowing up. 
but he's blowing up the U.S. economy. But it's going to be interesting to see how he rationalizes this, because he may be the very last person to acknowledge that he was wrong. I mean, everybody will figure it out before Paul Krugman does. Hi, this is Peter Schiff. And long before foreign governments and hedge funds were buying gold by the ton, I urged my clients to put 5 to 10% of their portfolios into physical precious metals. Despite gold's massive rise over the last decade, I still think that a 5 to 10% allocation to gold and silver is a smart investment decision. But buyers have to beware. Big TV gold dealers push all sorts of coins that are poor investments. Bait-and-switch deals, price protection guarantees, leveraged gold accounts. These are just a few of the sleazy tactics used to swindle inexperienced gold buyers. My gold company is different. We never offer a coin or bar unless I consider it to be a good investment. I want my customers to be educated. That's why I'm offering you a free research report exposing the biggest scams and ripoffs in the industry. Download my report, Classic Gold Scams, and how to avoid getting ripped off for free at goldscams.com. This report tells you everything you need to know about how to avoid losing thousands of dollars with scam gold dealers. It even tells you how to tell if a salesman is lying to you on the phone. This is a must-read for anyone considering a gold or silver investment. Download this free report today at goldscams.com. That's goldscams.com.